1: minimum of 4 lines for $25 per line per month with auto pay discount using debit or bank account $5 more per line without auto pay plus taxes and fees phone fee at 24 monthly bill credits for all well qualified customers contact us before canceling account to continue bill credits or credit stop and balance on required finance agreement due $35 per line connection charge applies ctmobile.com it is
0: 808 in the twin cities 50 degrees time now for one of my favorite guests the one and only professor david Schultz of Hamlin university
1: how, how are, you? are you I'm doing very well. How about you?
0: We have not talked in in quite a while. I know you've been uh, traveling a little bit and certainly – as always, an awful lot going on in this political world.
1: No, you're absolutely correct. I think that since the last, I can't remember when was the last time we talked. Was it January? It's been
0: a number of weeks.
1: weeks. Yes, I don't know what it was because I because you're right. I was in Ukraine for a while teaching, and and then of course the all the Timberwolves games, and so so it's been a while since we've been able to mesh our schedules together.
0: Right, absolutely. Well, it's great to have a chance to talk to you. I do want to ask you about. Uh, the presidential race and the latest uh, candidate or or possible candidate to be snagged by the Me Too movement, Joe Biden. What do you make of all this?
1: Well, this is interesting because all the polls are indicating that at least up until recently, that he's the front-runner for the Democrats. And, and just to put it into comparison here, you know, he's polling in the upper 20s, according to you know many surveys. Amy Klobuchar from Minnesota is around 3%. So so that just sort of puts you to kind of a comparison there. You've got Biden, you've got Sanders, and then you have a big gulf before you get to somebody like Elizabeth Warren or Kamala Harris. All right, so he's the front-runner. Um, and this is going to be interesting to see how this plays out here, um, because... You're right. In Minnesota, again, we know that the Me Too movement, you know, you know snared um, Al Franken. We know that it's had a significant impact, um, you know, politically in the country among Democrats. Um, it doesn't seem to have had um, a major impact um, um, with with Republicans yet. Although one could argue that 2018 election uh, with suburban women coming out. Was, was, was in part Result Me Too movement." But Biden, I think, it's going to be interesting to see how he negotiates um, these accusations over the next few weeks, because, I mean, it seems pretty clear he's planning on running at this point. Um, I can't imagine he's not. but he doesn't seem to um, well let I, I mean, I'll retract and say, it's not clear um, how he's really navigating these accusations and whether or not his responses um, are adequate.
0: Right, and it's interesting that you mentioned Al Franken uh, because I've seen a few articles that 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 talk about the Al Franken situation, and there are so many many Democrats here in Minnesota and here and across the country who feel that he resigned too quickly, Mm -hmm. and yes, there are differences, but in terms of what what people are saying about what Joe Biden did. and what Al Franken allegedly did, but there are certain parallels that I think are difficult to ignore. Uh, what do you think about the Franken situation as it applies to Joe Biden, or does it not apply at all?
1: Well, again, I think this is this is becoming a very complex question. I, I say that because you're right. There are many people who are saying that... I'm going to say there's at least two camps here. Camp one that says that any type of um, offensive or inappropriate touching um, um, is is grounds for excluding somebody for running from higher office or for holding office, which is sort of the push that, let's say, Senator Gillibrand from New York, you you know, putting the pressure on Franken to be out. And that's, I think, a lot of the Me Too movement. But there are also a lot of people within the Democratic Party that are saying, a variety of different things. You know, one of them is to say that that there's significant differences in the type of um, action that Biden um, has engaged in, and therefore that shouldn't exclude him. Or some saying that um, that we have to judge um, um, Biden's actions in a larger context of of let's say his politics um, and his ideology, and maybe perhaps you can't get 100%. You know, it's just some people saying in terms of somebody who's perfect on a lot of things or some people saying that, well, he's given his age, he's a reflection of a different era and things that he did reflects a different era in different time. So this, this is, so all these become very complex um, answers from, let's say, different constituencies within the Democratic Party. And in part, I think what, the 2020 presidential election is going to be about, is to what extent um, the, let's say, the Me Too movement imposes a litmus test um, upon candidates for office in terms of how we judge them, not just for, let's say, present activity or present actions, but let's say their past behaviors.
0: Well, and and I think that, that, you know, remains to be seen. I, I do think that it's prompting certainly a discussion about that, and I agree with you, you know, Joe Biden's sort of saying, Hey, I, I get it now and he's saying sort of this is, you know, a, a new era or whatever, but I, I don't think that that most men who are in their seventies are are going around and, and kissing the heads of people mm-hmm. they've just met. Uh you know, it's <laughs>
1: he, No, I agree. I, I, I agree. And so, so this you know, and he wants to respond by saying you know that what what that I'm a what I think it's phrase what I'm a tactile person or something like that I think it's right. phrase that he was you he was using you know I think you're absolutely correct is that um, I don't know of too many people um, you know regardless of age who, who do that that we we wouldn't generally describe as somebody who is doing something wrong or would say that they shouldn't be doing something like that um, it's inappropriate but I think we're where we're getting the, the debate with Biden also, and this is where Al Franken comes in, is that there's a lot of Democrats who are saying that, look, you know, we're kind of being hypocritical, or let's say, are, are the other sides being hypocritical, that is the Republicans, that... People like um, President Trump have done far worse, and no pressure is being exerted on him within the Republican Party to oust people. Why should we be um, holier than thou um, and impose this rigid litmus test? And again, some people are saying, and again, it's not me, So hopefully listeners don't shoot the messenger on this one, saying that, well, listen, you know, even if Franken did all those things... Politically, he was still pretty good on every other issue. Therefore, you know, we've lost him and we shouldn't. And I think you're saying the same thing now. The stakes are so great with trying to oust Donald Trump. Shouldn't we just overlook um, some of these behaviors of his and keep an eye on the presidential prize instead?
0: Right. And um, I think you, you raised a really important point. And I think the same thing appears to be applying to the president himself, who is mocking Joe Biden uh, for the very thing that he has been r- accused of. He's been accused of worse. I, I want to take a quick break, but let's talk about that when we get back, because the president going full bore on Joe Biden, attacking him on this, which is remarkable because, again, he has been repeatedly accused of, of even worse behavior, yet it doesn't seem to, to stick to him. And maybe his supporters are saying there's too much at stake to worry about this. I, I think maybe it's the exact same thing. So let's talk about that when we come back. You are listening to News Talk 830, as May Murphy, along with Professor David Schultz. The Twin Cities, Esme Murphy, along with producer Shaletta Brundage now, uh, talking with Professor David Schultz of Hamlin University. We're talking about the situation involving Joe Biden and the fact that, that, you know, when this came out, the president has, has gone after Joe Biden, attacking him, uh, for these accusations that he acted inappropriately, even mocking him on Twitter with a doctored video, uh, with Joe Biden basically sort of molesting himself. you you got to see it, folks. But mm-hmm. the president just really going intensely uh, against Joe Biden. Obviously, the president has been accused of this and, and, and more, and yet it doesn't seem to affect his support at all.
1: No, you're absolutely right. And it reflects a few different things here. One of them may be the fact that if we were to look at the um, the basis of the Democratic versus Republican parties now, there is a dramatic um, gender gap between them. And what I mean by that, um, far more men um, are members of um, and consider themselves to be Republican than Democrat. And we have an incredible amount of psychological um, and sociological data um, that supports the notion that what men and women find offensive um, varies pretty dramatically. For anybody who's ever gone through, like you have, probably I have sexual harassment trading at work, you know, in terms of what not to yes. do and, 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 and things that you have to be concerned about. We know about those differences. And so so one of them may be that, the, that reflects what? His base looking at the world differently than the Democratic base, which is more female. Second, it may be that this is an issue that's not important to his base. Third, it could be that they find that the issues of immigration, um, of, let's say, trade um, to be much more important. And therefore, allegations against Donald Trump about sexual uh, inappropriate behavior um, are discounted um, compared to Democrats who seem to put a a stronger premium um, on these issues.
0: You know, one of the things that that is, is so interesting to see is that you know, the president obviously hammering on this, obviously loving the fact that, that the person he sees as his chief rival, because according to a number of reports, he really feels that Joe Biden is the one who is the threat to him, mm-hmm. uh, is, is embroiled in this. Uh, and, and you see the president just continuing to do this and continuing to focus on Joe Biden in this way, uh, obviously feeling that this is something that's going to
1: win him support. And I, think, and I think this is a winning strategy too. If we look at what he did incredibly, incredibly successfully um, during the 2016 Republican primary season, he would find the the vulnerable point of, of of a Bush or of a Perry or of or of whoever one of his main rivals would have been, and he hammers that and exploits that. And that's been a very, very effective strategy that he's been able to use all along. Same thing in the general election. He, you know, he focused on concerns about Clinton and her emails, for example. So I think he's doing the same thing here, is that he's finding um, what seems to be the vulnerable points, understanding in, with Biden how the, con- the concerns about um, his inappropriate touching um, might have a dramatic impact in terms of um, many people not within a Democratic Party willing to support him. And you're right. The polls are suggesting right now, if polls could be believed, um, and generally they can be, um, um, oftentimes, but not always, if polls could be believed, um, Biden is a formidable challenger to Donald Trump in 2020. And I think Trump is smart from his perspective to start going after Biden um, and weaken him now.
0: Right. You know what? Let me ask you this because the, the polls do show uh, Joe Biden with a significant lead. Granted, Bernie Sanders is is, is pretty much right there with him as well. Uh, we're still um, – well, a year from now, we'll be in the thick of it, won't we? We will be in the thick of it. You <laughs> know, so it's, it's not that far away anymore. I mean it's really 10 months we're talking about for, for the uh, Iowa caucuses.
1: And even even quicker if we think about the fact that in this August will be the Iowa straw poll. Um, which, there you go. Yeah, so we're looking at now, if I can if I can count my fingers and toes, we're looking <laughs> at about six six to seven months, actually six months, and we're really gonna be in the middle middle of the Iowa straw polls at that point. Yeah.
0: Historically, how accurate are the polls uh, five, six, ten months out when it comes to presidential races?
1: Um, not overly accurate uh, because I still think campaigns matter. At the end of the day, candidates can campaign and do a good job, do a bad job. Um, Trends emerge um, in terms or, or events happen that can change campaigns. Now, my profession, political science, there's a whole group of people argue that you can make predictions about a year in advance based upon the state of the economy um, and a few other variables. Um, I'm not quite that hardcore that says that, um, that we can predict that far out with pinpoint accuracy because most of those models don't work. And again, they ignore campaigns. The other thing, which I will start now, the 2020 campaign season now by reminding everybody is, remember also, the aggregate national polls don't matter because what we don't elect people by popular vote there you go <laughs> we elect them by the Electoral College in 2016 um, the polls at the end of the election said Clinton would win by the national popular vote by two to three points What did she win the national popular vote by about two to three points the polls got it exactly right but the real battle, this is what my research is all about, is about what? It's about the 51-state le- state election, 50 states plus District of Columbia, the battle for the Electoral College, and more importantly, it's those 10 or 12 swing states that really determine everything. So what we really we should be having our conversation on is where Trump versus Biden sit in places like Florida, Ohio, Wisconsin, Michigan, um, Pennsylvania, that that would tell me far more at this point.
0: All right. Chatting here with Professor David Schultz, uh, a bachelor election. Uh, you know, you mentioned something that's really interesting and that I have a further question on. You mentioned how important women voters are. Obviously, they're important for Republicans, and, and Donald Trump did get a lot of support from women. But you're saying that they're even more important to Democrats. And I'm wondering – If the problems that are are cropping up with Joe Biden right now – and granted, he hasn't even announced his candidacy – added to a layer of people are bound to look back on his career and it's a long one. There's a lot there to look at. Mm -hmm. But one of the things that that is in his background is he was the chair of the Judiciary Committee during the Anita Hill hearings and there are an awful lot of of, – Feminists, especially, who were less than thrilled with how he behaved towards Anita Hill. Is this something that that makes him potentially vulnerable?
1: I think it does. and and again, just a couple of statistics here. If we go back to the two thousand and eighteen elections last year, fifty two percent of the voters in the United States were are, were female. So that so women are the majority voters now, and and again, And we're seeing that more consistently now because, what, women are a majority of the population now, slightly, but they're seeming to be more likely to turn out to vote um, than if we had this conversation, let's say, 20 or 25 years ago. And you're right. We have to think of the fact that there are, within that spectrum of female voters, lots of different groups, and included within that are going to be um, some women who do remember the Anita Hill hearings, you know, in which – um, he didn't seem to press Clarence Thomas anywhere near as hard as he should, um, and resulting in the fact that um, I think some of his questioning and the questioning of others um, was highly um, skeptical towards um, towards Professor Hill at that point, you know, regarding her allegations of, of um, um, sexual harassment by Clarence Thomas. I think that's going to affect some people. Um, I think that these allegations that are surfacing now, you know, um, that have just come up in the last week or two, um, will also resonate, I think, with, um, let's say, younger voters where the Me Too movement seems to be even more solid in terms of drawing clear lines in the sand regarding acceptable and unacceptable behavior. That's why I come back to something we were saying a few months ago here. I think it's going to be really critical regarding how Biden responds to these comments um, and also at the same time, how do female voters place um, his past behavior um, and what he's saying within a larger context and saying, OK, I don't like what he's doing, but we got to get rid of Donald Trump. Or do they say we have able candidates and Amy Klobuchar, Kamala Harris, uh, Elizabeth Warren, uh, Kristen Gillibrand, and therefore, you know, we have we have alternatives.
0: All right, chatting here with Professor David Schultz, We have to take a quick break. So much as always to talk about. Want to talk uh, after our break? We've got to give you some weather here, but afterwards, want to talk about. Amy Klobuchar, talk about Kristen, Kristen Gillibrand, talk about Cory Booker and Kamala Harris and see how he thinks these other candidates are stacking up. And, of course, Bernie Sanders uh, in the Democratic field. So keep it here. You're listening to News Talk 830. When we come back, we'll give you some weather and then more with Professor David Schultz. It is 8.36 in the Twin Cities. Esme Murphy along with Professor David Schultz. We are talking the presidential race here. Uh, What are your thoughts about how uh, the other Democratic candidates are faring? Obviously Bernie Sanders is doing very well. Uh, on top of the polls with Joe Biden, uh, one, one candidate that I think is doing remarkably well is the mayor of South Bend, Indiana. He is, uh, only 37 years old. He is gay. He is married, uh, to another man. Uh, his name is Pete Buttigieg. And he has really done well in terms of fundraising. Uh, and it was it had a breakout performance in a CNN town hall, which CNN has been giving to all of the candidates, uh, if they have wanted it, apparently. Uh, your thoughts about Buttigieg uh, and some of the other candidates,
1: uh, and also Klobuchar. Okay, so let's start with, given the fact that Joe Biden hasn't officially declared yet, so we'll just say, among declared candidates, you have to put right now what? Um, Bernie Sanders as the leader, both in terms of where he's polling um, and also in terms of his fundraising. So he's he's clearly the front runner right now. Um, and then, if we were looking both in terms of polling and in terms of um, dollars, second becomes Senator Kamala Harris from California. Then we now start to get a tighter pack where where um, where he, along with Elizabeth Warren, you know, seem to be you know, let's say at that let's say that third or so third or fourth position and he's come out of nowhere um he's raised an incredible amount of money you know very very quickly um what's i think what seven or eight million dollars or something like that and he seems to be i don't know he seems to be the buzz of the town right now where everybody's talking about him um so so that would be probably be my first tier at this point in terms of candidates Unfortunately for Senator Klobuchar, she doesn't seem to be making a lot of traction. She, she declared, um, she raised what we think was about a million or so dollars very quickly, um, but you know, at the end of the first quarter, candidates will release, you know, which meant at the end of March, will release their fundraising you know, to show how well they're doing. She's really not released her numbers yet publicly or made a big deal out of it. Many people are speculating that after that initial declaration, she didn't really raise a lot of money. She still seems to be hovering at about 2 to 3% in the polls. Her, I'm going to say that her campaign right now seems to be stuck. Stuck, and she doesn't seem to be really getting a lot of traction um, that I can see. But I think her whole strategy is still what? It's it's doing well in Iowa. And I think maybe the last time we talked about, um, about Klobuchar, um, we mentioned the fact that, while Iowa has oftentimes been a a good strategy for candidates, less than half the time does a candidate who win Iowa goes on to win the the nomination and on top of which this year when Iowa holds its caucuses will be the starting early voting for California for its primary. That right. changes things dramatically.
0: Right. Uh, and, and it will be interesting. It also, if, if Joe Biden fades, I, I, I think it's fair to say that, that Amy Senator Amy Klobuchar is, is probably one of the few other moderates yes. in the race.
1: Yes. yes. And I, and so I think you're right. I think if 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 Biden does enter the race, we're doing a lot of the opposite guessing here, I think he hurts her significantly. But on the other hand, if Biden doesn't enter the race, or, he falls like, apart. Or falls apart. I think she stands stands probably to benefit more so than almost any of the other candidates out there. Because I would say in many ways, um, Biden and Klobuchar are probably politically or ideologically closer to one another than, let's say, Klobuchar is to a Sanders or to a Harris or to a um um, let us say, you know, to even a Cory Booker.
0: All right. Um, Jill Brand also seems to be not doing particularly well. This is a senator from New York, and she is the one who was the first to call on Senator Al Franken to resign, and that has haunted her uh, throughout this campaign. Um, Cory Booker still doing pretty well. I mean, the, the, the breakout of, of sort of the lesser knowns seem to be, seems to be this Mayor Buttigieg.
1: Well, you're right, and and he's somebody who I wouldn't have called I don't think any of us would have called, let's say, two months ago as somebody to likely to break out. If, you know, if I were going to make any kind of calls two months ago, I would have thought that somebody, again, like a, like a Cory Booker, would, would be doing even better than he is doing. Um, I would have thought you know, that I think Klobuchar would have done a little bit better than I think she's doing right now, um, um, but, but I, wouldn't have, I wouldn't have even seen Buttigieg. Um, on the screen in terms of somebody. In fact, when he first declared, I'm thinking, sure, the mayor of South Bend at thirty seven is going to run for office. You know that's you know, that's not going to get him very far in life
0: right. and 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 he does seem to be doing uh, remarkably well. Well, listen, let's take a, a quick break right now. And when we come back, we're going to shift to the local scene and let's talk about what's going on at the legislature and also Governor Tim Wall's state of the state address. So, Keep it right here, folks. We're going to take a quick break. We're going to come back with Professor David Schultz to talk about uh, the the battle of the legislature. Obviously, differences shaping up in terms of funding. Uh, can they reach an agreement uh, by May 20th when the session is supposed to end? This is the year they've got to get a budget, folks. They can't just leave it open-ended once again. So we'll chat about that when we come back. It is 8.45 on a Saturday evening. Esme Murphy along with Professor David Schultz. Let's switch to local politics uh, and the state of the state address. Governor Tim Walls facing off against Republicans. It does not look like there's any agreement at all when it comes to this gas tax that the governor says is something that he wants to see. He was talking about a 20-cent increase. He feels he has a mandate. Republicans are saying, no, you don't.
1: Yeah. Well, let's first start with the speech. It was an exceedingly well-delivered speech. I don't know if you listened to it, but yeah, I, I he's he he's
0: he's he's very. Um... <laughs> He's very good at giving a speech. I mean, he's and, and he didn't use uh, a teleprompter. He used an outline. right? And he, it was just um, he's very good. I mean, some 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 people are just that's their thing. He's very good at
1: it. I was going to say, as one as one teacher speaking about another teacher, I thought he did an exceedingly good job deliver, delivering a, a lesson plan. Having said all of that. I don't think he changed a single Republican's mind in the yeah. legislature. <laughs> um, and I think I think the Democrats loved him. If you watched the 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 applauses, um, who who was more vociferous, who was applauding more, as Democrats versus Republicans. But at the end of the day, he didn't move the Republicans on probably any of his agenda, but especially on that twenty cent a gallon tax, and that really is pretty critical because so much of what he wants to do in terms of, of the infrastructure is hinged upon that, but also we should think in terms of not just the gas tax. You know, there are, there are many things that he wants to do in his budget, and the Republicans at this point and the Democrats seem to be an incredibly long distance apart um, on, on a lot of things, and I know it's too early to start talking about, or maybe it's not too early to start talking about the fact that... We might have to go to special session, but I think the gap is so large right now that I don't know how easy it's going to be to narrow that between now and and May 20th. And
0: and the problem is, is that this is one of the years where they've got to get a budget done. (laughs) Because if, if they don't, you you run the risk of a shutdown.
1: No, you're right. Remember, for people who don't know, it's a biennial budget. It's, confi-
0: it's confusing. I mean, it, Minnesota it, system. I, it, it is somebody you knew somebody who's covered it for years. It's confusing.
1: It is very confusing. So what happens is that we do budgets for two years at a time, and so after um, in in in, in in odd years like this, I mean, like, you know, in numerically odd years, I don't mean odd in terms of strange, but numerically odd years, the, the state um, makes a two-year budget. Under our Constitution, um, um, we're supposed to have the work done uh, um, by, I, I think what the Constitution says, um, they have to adjourn under our Constitution by the, what is it, the the I think it's what, the third Tuesday after, the first Tuesday after the third Monday in May. I think that's what it says there. So May May 20th this year, they have to have it done. And the track record in Minnesota hasn't been good in the last few years in terms of getting this, this biannual budget done. And if we don't get the budget done, um, we run the risk, as we've seen, of a partial government shutdown because our budget year, our new fiscal year in Minnesota, um, starts on July 1st. And so, so if we don't make that May 20th deadline, we technically still have till July 1st, you know, you know, to get the job done before a partial shutdown. But talk to local governments, talk to school districts that get money from the state of Minnesota, and getting things done closer to July 1st as opposed to early in May is a problem because. They're making decisions, especially with schools, on what, how many teachers they're going to hire, um, classroom size, and so forth. So, this is a big one. They have to get it done um, because if they don't get it done, especially if they don't get it done by July 1st, we go into a partial government shutdown.
0: The governor is convinced that he has a mandate, and he did win a decisive victory in November. And the House, the entire Minnesota House was up and that flipped to the Democratic side. This, the re- Republican controlled Senate was not up for election. So I think the governor really, I think, genuinely believes he's got this mandate there. Uh, yet the Republicans say, hey, we're still here. We're not going anywhere. It doesn't, somebody's going to have to blink here. Is, do the Republicans have less to lose? And so they, they won't blink?
1: Yeah, they definitely have less to lose. Now, first, if the governor can claim a mandate, so can the Democrats, but the Republicans can come back and say two things. First, Governor, you only won 22 of the 87 counties in the state. Republicans still won geographically more area of the state, and we still control the Senate. And on top of which, the Republicans, I think, I have to keep in mind that the last time several Republicans voted in favor of a gas tax. Um, all the Republicans who voted in favor of it um, lost their positions or were primary or were out of office at the next election. So, So I think this is a message that's not lost on Republicans, that they can't support a tax increase. On top of which, I'll throw one more thing in here, is that I think the Republicans would love to be able to say – Um, going into the 2020 elections next year and win the entire House and Senate up for election, they'd like to be able to say, listen, the governor ran on taxes, increasing taxes. We opposed him. Um, The governor ran on this agenda. He couldn't get it done. The Democrats and the governor ran on saying they're going to run government well. Uh, We had to go into another, what, um, um, overtime session. I think the Republicans have very, very little to lose uh, next year, and they may be banking on the fact that why, with Donald Trump on the ticket, um they might do fairly well in Minnesota next year.
0: Right. So so that that'll be interesting to see. I, I can't imagine that either side would be willing to take this to a shutdown.
1: I would hope not. I would hope not, especially given the given we just went through the longest what the federal government shutdown right. in history and we've had a pattern of of shutdowns in Minnesota. I'd be Whatever whatever I want to say, I can't imagine somebody would be willing to do that. Something
0: happens. (laughs)
1: It happens. happens Because the the political, you know, even though collectively we are all better off not having the government shut down, the individual political interests um, don't favor that, that the governor has his interests, the Democratic legislators have theirs, the Republican legislators have their interests, and they're not lining up. Um, and that's the recipe for for the shutdown when we have divided government and different interests. And that's something we should also again remind listeners of the fact that we are the only state in the country where the legislature is split. And by that, um, every which
0: other, is remarkable it, to me.
1: Yeah, yeah, every other state in the country either both houses of the legislature are Democrat are both a Republican, except for Nebraska, which is a single House. Um, we are the only one in the country with a split legislature, and that makes the politics in Minnesota um, even more difficult than it is, let us say, in most states in the country.
0: Right. And, and again, I go back to what I was talking about, is if, if the Republicans, and we won't know if the Republicans had been up, would they have flipped as well? right it it's very possible and i think that that's what the governor is sometimes is looking at that being said and obviously there are there are some big problems when it comes to these monetary issues and and the bottom line that's that's an that's the ball game there there still has been movement on on some key bills that that are very important in terms of you know the quality of life uh in terms of issues like distracted driving um opioid issues you know tighter rein on that where both parties are agreeing, a- and that is something, I guess.
1: Yeah, I think that's important, that underneath, I think, some of the noise, we are seeing a few things getting done, but where I think the big issues that really divide are what? Um, tax and spend, at the end of the day. It's, it's it's the issues over the gas tax, renewal of the medical provider tax. It is over the fact that the Republicans in the Senate are proposing a state budget I think it's approximately, what, $2 billion less than the governor. So on on some, I'm going to say, of the big-picture philosophical issues about the role of government um, and in terms of the economy, in terms of our society, and in terms of, let's say, generating revenue and taxes, this is where I think the big divides are between Um, the governor, the the House Democrats, and the Senate Republicans.
0: And this medical tax is one that was set to go away. It's been in place. Right. And and so there's a debate about whether to continue it or not.
1: Right. And and that generates $700 million a year. That's a big chunk of money. And I mention this because the governor's current budget um, presupposes that that tax will be renewed. Um, His plans for infrastructure um, presuppose that the 20-cent-per-gallon increase on the gas tax will be, will be supported. If Let's just say those two things don't happen, and I think it's very unlikely that we're going to see either of them supported by the Republicans. Um, that blows an enormous hole um, in the governor's budget that, that I think um, possibly makes um, it look like the governor and the Democrats have more to lose in this one than the Republicans do.
0: And the thing about the gas tax, too, is that, yes, and there's no question that Governor Tim Walls made it incredibly clear that he was campaigning on a gas tax. But the figure that he was kind of throwing out there was a figure that would have been about a $0.10 cent gas tax. And I think a lot of people kind of drew a sharp breath when he revealed 20 Did he miscalculate there? Because if so, it's a rare miscalculation to a guy who seems – uh, remarkably politically savvy.
1: Yeah, I, I think everybody knew he was going to propose a gas tax, and I think you're right. Five cents, ten cents is what everybody was prepared for. Um, I'm still not sure if Republicans would have supported it, but I think you're definitely correct is that he didn't lay the groundwork for what seems to be a pretty, which it is, a pretty significant tax increase or gas tax increase in Minnesota. And I think that is making it exceedingly hard for him to make his case at this point. Now, his State of the State speech, he tried to highlight that by referencing places like Highway 14 in southern Minnesota.
0: You mentioned, you know, an accident that that killed somebody he knew.
1: That's right. That's right. But I'm still not sure um, he's won the debate because the Republicans will come back and say, yes, we agree that we need to do this, but we think we can do all this by a shift in spending priorities and not by a gas tax increase.
0: All right. Well, Professor David Schultz, it is always a ple- pleasure. Great to talk to you after quite a long time here
1: on the radio. Well, I think so, and hopefully we'll be doing more of this again, I think, as the basketball season comes to an end.
0: Absolutely. All right. Thank you so much. The one and only Professor David Schultz, I invite you to tune in to his uh, blog. It's a great blog. I want to thank Shaletta Brundage. I want to thank Jonathan Lowe and also the wonderful producer of this show, Susan Blanche. Have a great Saturday night, everyone.